0: This afternoon we confess together the Belgic Confession, Article 16. We believe that God, after all the offspring of Adam, thus fell head over heels into perdition and destruction by the guilt of the first man, demonstrated and put forth his very self as such a kind as he is, both merciful and also just, indeed merciful and freeing and saving from damnation and ruin, those whom in his eternal counsel he elected, out of gratuity, apart from any work, according to his goodness through our Lord Jesus Christ, truly just in leaving behind others in their fall and ruin, into which they threw their very selves head over heels. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we consider this afternoon the doctrine of predestination, we pray that we would be... Um, very sensitive to your spirit as he leads us in hearing your word preached on this very important subject. Help us to not astray or um, feel afraid in any sort of way uh, about this doctrine, but to flee to Christ to understand it fully. May we hear the law convicting us of sin and the gospel convicting and winning us to Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson comes from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29, and that is found on page 945 of your pew Bibles. (coughs) Once again... 9.45 is the page number in your pew bibles. We hear God's word from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 29. Brothers and sisters, this is the holy word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears a witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed but also, when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, her forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done done nothing either good or bad. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works but because of His call, she was told, "The older will serve the younger." As it is written, "Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does moldest say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed He says in Hosea, Those who are not My people, I will call My people. And who her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is, was said to them, you are not my people, there they were called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand on the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully, without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have all been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The Word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and friends. We touch on the very important and controversial subject of predestination. And it's one of those doctrines that you hear a lot of times discussed like religion and politics. It's something you shouldn't discuss in polite company. And why is that? Because it deals with The one true God, the holy God, who has the right to make whatever decision he wishes to make. And humanity is very much leveled or humbled by this doctrine. And of course, who wants to discuss that? But we must. It is biblical. The interesting thing is you'll hear people today say, Well, I don't believe in that. Oh, really? Well, turn to Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 or you know, all these other passages that actually have the word predestination. Then they'll say, oh, well, that must mean that God looks down the quarters of time and based on a person's decision, he chooses them. Well, you're reading something into the text. And by the way, that's not what foreknowledge means in Romans chapter 8. It means that God knew beforehand the person. And knew him also in the sense of choosing him. So we can't get out of it. This is what God teaches. It's very plain. And it's also important to discuss predestination within the doctrines of grace, which are sometimes called the uh, five points of Calvinism. Now we've discussed this before, but that's not a fair term to use, Calvinism. Because John Calvin himself said, Look, you guys, don't call yourself Calvinists. You're not Calvin followers. Your God-followers call yourselves Reformed. But still, that's what people say, and so we can we can mention that. And, and besides, uh, the terms really come from the canons of Dort, which have five, uh, five heads of doctrine. So, it's the five heads of doctrine, also called the doctrines of grace, within which we understand this very important doctrine. Because of that, first, we'll understand very quickly that context of the five heads of uh, doctrine or TULIP, and um, then we'll define and explain predestination from Romans chapter 9. So the first part will explain very quickly this uh, proper context of the five heads of doctrine and the canons of Dort, and people, uh, to be clever and also to help us uh, remember the five points or doctrines, uh, came up with this acronym called TULIP. T is in total depravity, U as in unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. That same order doesn't appear in the canons of Dort, but it's it's still helpful nonetheless. So this is what we confess that the Bible clearly teaches and is the proper context in which to understand predestination. First and foremost, we confess that we are totally depraved we don't mean by that that we are the worst we could be, as in utterly depraved, but we say that every faculty that we have, our mind, our will, our emotions, um, our purpose in life, whatever you want to say, is tainted by sin. So when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, um, you were dead in your sins and transgressions, this is what he means. He goes on to say that he once walked in these, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is just as unpopular as, as predestination. You, know, you don't bring this up in polite company at your, your party. As you know, you're children of wrath. God hates you if you don't know Him. That wouldn't be, it would be true if they're outside of Christ. But, you know, we don't talk that way. But, but the fact of the matter is, anyone who does not know Christ is a child of wrath. So that's what we mean by total depravity. And it is useful to start here because this is really the basis of why we have to be chosen by God. And so, T, we're totally depraved. U, We believe in what's called unconditional election. That is, God's decision is not conditioned on anything in us. He doesn't say, well, you know, I like you, so I'm going to choose you, and I really don't like this person over here. Or I know you're going to be pretty good, so I'm going to go ahead and choose you, and this guy's not going to be so good. He's going to prison, so I'm not going to choose. That's not how God does it. He decides on the basis of his own uh, logic to choose some people. We'll get into this a little bit more in a moment. But Ephesians 1, is very clear. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So, T-U-L. L is limited atonement, or we could say definite atonement. That is, we confess the Scriptures are very clear that Christ died only for His elect. He didn't die for everyone and leave it into the hands of people to decide to be the strong link in the chain. No, God, God, uh, Christ rather, died for His elect. His death was efficacious. When He died for His people, they are saved. That can't be changed. That's why this is a wonderful doctrine and it makes sense in the context, doesn't it? If people are dead, God chooses them. It's those people who are going to be saved and this is how God works redemption. John 10, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I laid down my life for the sheep. Not for everybody, and they get to make their own decision. But I laid, laid down my life for my sheep. So T-U-L-I is the fourth point, uh, irresistible grace. That is, as Paul says, who resists his will? Who resists his will? If if God chooses you, if he he works to save you, you can't resist that. Paul on the road to Damascus, did you know, how much choice did he have? I mean, we could say potentially he could resist God, right? But not really. He's not going to resist God. He's going to be drawn irresistibly to God and his grace. Isaiah fifty five. It's a great text. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, I do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, as God sent, the God of providence, of creation, waters the earth, it's going to respond necessarily. So, God sends out his word. Nobody can argue with that. If they are God's elect, once that word is preached to them, they're going to hear it, and they're going to believe it. This has a big bearing on the way we think about apologetics, or how we talk to people about the Christian faith. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how clever your arguments are. If you've memorized the whole Bible in the original languages, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to be impressed unless the Spirit of God works in their hearts. But when He does, they will respond. Finally, perseverance of the saints. And all you can see how this all holds together. If we're dead in our sins and transgression, transgressions, God chooses us. He works his atonement efficaciously for us and uh, draws us. We can't get out of that grasp. And so the wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Romans 8:35 and following, Paul says, No one, nothing can separate you from Christ. Nothing, no one. You can't even get out of his grasp. Even if you said, you know, I don't know if I want to do this, and you know, if you are God's elect, you cannot get out of His grasp. Okay, so that's the context within which to understand predestination. And the problem is, brothers and sisters, many people today make predestination a doctrine that becomes this philosophical abstraction, like dividing the scriptures up like it's a science text and saying, "This is how it works. Let me explain it to you." And, you know, we can understand this and grasp it with our minds. I mean, can anybody really grasp what is going on here? Study it all you want. But like people like Calvin said it's a terrible doctrine, not, not a bad doctrine, but a terrible uh, one that causes fear and trembling because we realize uh, who we're up against here. The God who has absolute um, power and sovereignty to choose some and not choose others. Uh, So we have to put it in the proper context of understanding who God is. He's not the God. He's not a stoic God who makes decisions based on something outside of a personal will. God is personal. He's a gracious God, a long-suffering God. If you understand him, it makes sense. Now Paul argues in Romans chapter 9 for what is called double predestination. That is, God elects some people to eternal life giving them grace, and passing over others with His grace, which is called reprobation. Very important. So, when you hear the word predestination, you need to think of two things. One is election, which is a positive thing. God chooses some. And reprobation, which we actually say is a passive thing. That is, God passes over uh, people with His grace. And so God doesn't have to actively damn people. People are already damned. They're they're born in sin. There's original sin. We go back to total depravity. If all people are this way, God doesn't have to do anything to to make them worse than they are. They're already damned. So in reprobation, he passes over them. So two parts to predestination. Election and reprobation. Now Paul's argument in chapter 9. Verses 1 through 6, Paul is upset because many of his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Christ. And after all, according to Romans chapter 3, Jews as well as Gentiles are under the threat of God's judgment for their sin. And so Paul sees all of his brothers and sisters rejecting the Christ and he's upset because he says, it seems like, at least on the surface, that God is not being consistent with his promises. He promised that these people, the Jews, would be the bearers of God's uh, son. All the covenants are given to them, the sacrifices, all this kind of stuff. And it seems to call into question God's promises and their security when so many people reject him. But Paul goes on to say that is not true. His promises have not failed. Context is everything. This is the only way you can understand this passage. Now Paul's thesis is found, or thesis for his argument is found in verse 6. He says... Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not every single person, just because they're a Jew, they're circumcised, they have this bloodline, means that they are truly God's child or truly God's elect. The fact that some within Israel are the elect and will fulfill God's promise to make Israel a light into the world, and to be the channel through which Abraham's blessing flow, proves that God's promises have not failed. This is his argument. In other words, he says, there are some Jews who truly believe. And why do they believe? Why do they go on to honor the Christ? Because they were elected to do so. Yes, the whole nation was elected to be God's people, that is to be a nation, but individual election applies to only some of those people. And of course the Abrahamic blessings are important because they speak to the promises of Christ and the gospel. So you go back to Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, 22, 26, and God is making all these promises to Abraham and his descendants, his kids. And the promise is that from that line will come... The Christ. So, not every individual Jew is condemned. Some are indeed saved. They are God's elect. And the point we wish to emphasize here is that the way in which God's promises are made true and the fact that some are saved proves individual election. And this is important because some people argue oh, if you look at this, Paul is talking about national election. All right. I mean, he goes on to say, Jacob, not Esau. Jacob is Israel, right? His name was changed to Israel, and uh, it's not Esau it's the promised nation is Jacob's nation that is Israel. Now it goes, but that's not it at all. Again, consider the argument here. Uh, Paul is talking about individuals, and again, he's saying the nation of Israel, the elect nation is a composite nation. There are some within the nation who are God's elect and some that are not. That proves that Paul, you see, is talking here about individual election. So verses 7 through 9, Paul merely goes on to argue that just because someone is a child of Abraham doesn't mean that they are God's elect. Ishmael was Abraham's kid, right? But he was the originator of the Ishmaelites, not the chosen one. Isaac was the chosen one, the elect, the child of promise, or the child of God. Again, the context of Paul's argument here is critical. He's arguing about individuals, not just a line of people or a nation. That's how, again, he starts his whole argument. Not all the people in the line of Israel, this nation, are God's elect, but only some. Verses 10-13, through further, the children of, of Isaac... Jacob and Esau are examples of individual election based not on who they are or what they have done, but only upon God's decision and will. God elected Jacob over Esau in the womb. One of the most powerful passages on double predestination. God says, I am choosing Jacob. Not just a nation, but Jacob, the person. And I'm not choosing, I'm passing over Esau. And so notice, in verse 14, that the response, and this is the response today, it's never changed, that's not fair. It's unjust. I mean, how can you say that, Paul? That God chooses one and He does not choose another, and it's based on nothing having to do with a person. God simply chooses one, He does not choose other, and... It's just natural for people to say that's not fair. Everybody should be chosen. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? God should choose everyone? He's not choosing anything then. And He's allowing salvation to be in the hands of man. No, it's, it, God is fair. So verses 15 and 18, uh, Paul continues, God has mercy and compassion upon whom He chooses. He has mercy upon whom he will have mercy and will harden whom he wishes to harden. And anyway, Paul continues, who are you to talk back to God? Who are you, a creature, to talk back to God as if he owes you some explanation? I mean, this is the other thing. People think, well, I need some facts, God. You need to, you need to help me understand why you're being this way. How can you choose somebody and not choose someone else? That doesn't make sense to me, God. Why don't you spell it out? And if there was any answer, it would be right here in this context. Paul says, who are you? I mean, who am I, Paul would say? I'm just the mouthpiece of God. This is what he revealed to me. And this is what I'm saying to you. How can you, the pot, say to the potter, why did you make me like this? The potter says, I'm going to make this vessel for whatever use. ignoble not noble, whatever. Noble. And he does it. That's all there is. The pot has no, no say in the matter. And so it is with you. Um, God didn't even have to create you. He didn't. He decided to create you, to create a world, to do whatever he wanted. He could, could have created you as a rock. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he decided now to create you. And not all of his purposes are revealed, Paul is saying behind this passage. It's like you're bumping up against the holy God. And Paul would say, I don't understand all this. All I know is this is what God said. This is the way it is. You must accept it. And only those who are God's elect accept this anyway. And so Paul's conclusion is so fitting. If you go um, to Romans chapter 11. God will be God. He is who he is. Just like he said to Moses In Exodus chapter 3, when he revealed himself to Moses. He didn't give Moses all the answers either, did he? It's such a great passage. Moses, like, who are you? I am who I am. My name is Yahweh. That's all you need to know. But God, and he goes on and on and on, this is the mediator of Israel, and, you know, just on and on, give me some answers. God says, I don't have to give you any answers, Moses. I don't care who you are. I made you, and I'm sending you out to do this. And so the way Paul closes this is sort of the same way the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen and so the people of God praise God for this doctrine. And if you look at it too narrowly, it's going to freak you out. You're just going to be met with darkness, the holiness and the majesty of God that you cannot understand or care who you are. It doesn't matter who I am. Nobody can understand this. But you back off and say, God will be who He will be, but I will flee to Christ and understand His love for me. Christ, you see, is the revelation of God. Christ reveals God's nature He is the radiance of his glory. If you want to understand, go to Christ. Flee to him. If you're wondering, am I God's elect? What does Jesus say? Go to him. He will not reject those who come to him. Christ is the explanation. He is the textbook, as it were, to make you understand, if you wish, this whole thing. So in conclusion, first, predestination is biblical and clear. Other interpretations are just wrong. It is very clear what Paul is saying here. Second, it's one of the many doctrines that demonstrates God's power, holiness, and sovereignty. God will be who he will be. And that's why we worship him. We don't worship a sub-God. We worship the one true God. Finally, it does not result in people doing whatever they want. But it results in gratitude that God would choose me. Why would God choose me? We confess. He has chosen you to believe and to rest in Christ alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.